Uh, today we're just continuing our um, sermon series called The Cost. And uh, it's all about taking a fresh look at the things Jesus said about following him and asking ourselves, what does it really mean to follow Jesus? I think that's a really good question to ask. What does it really mean to follow Jesus? How do we move from believer to follower? It's pretty easy to be a follower these days, isn't it? You literally just pick up your phone and uh, we can follow someone that we don't even know. Does anyone follow someone they don't even know? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, We can follow them from a comfortable distance. And uh, occasionally, we might even let them know that uh, we like them by sending a we love heart um, to show our appreciation of the lovely picture of the dinner that they posted. And uh, if we feel like it, though, with just one tap, we can unfollow. Has anyone done that? Just one tap all it takes. Jesus wants more than a love heart occasionally. He wants our whole heart, the whole time, the whole of our lives, all of me for all of him. In Second Chronicles chapter 16, I love this. It says, the eyes of the Lord look throughout the earth to strengthen those hearts Whose, are, whose hearts are completely his. The Lord is looking to and fro, it says in other translations, throughout the whole earth to strengthen those whose hearts are completely his. Isn't that lovely? He's on the lookout for people who are 100% committed to him. When I was on holiday last week, I was reading a book and I read this. It said, in every generation... There are, it seems, a few people who are prepared to take Jesus seriously. There are, in every generation, it seems, a few people who are prepared to take Jesus seriously at his word. And then it said, what would it be like if you were one of them? What would it be like if you were one of the few in your generation? So Holly, in your generation which is younger than my generation. And then there's other generations, but I won't say just because it might make people feel a bit older. Um, What would it look like if you were one of the few in your generation whose heart was completely his and you were prepared to take him seriously at his word? We know, don't we, that every single word that Jesus spoke, every promise, every challenge, every encouragement, and every command was spoken from the very heart of God, with the purpose of leading us into freedom and into uh, truth and into life. But the challenge is, and there's a challenge, is that some of the things that Jesus said when it comes to following him and stepping into that freedom are hard to hear and even harder to do. They're costly. And the temptation in front of us all is to not take them seriously, to water them down, or to even avoid them altogether. And to do any of those things would be to completely miss what it really means to follow Jesus. I wonder what your answer would be if I asked you, 
what does it really mean for you to follow Jesus? Surely it's more than just believing that he existed. It's more even than um, believing that he can save you. It's more than coming to church and connect group. Being a follower is being able to call Jesus not just your savior, but your Lord. Literally handing him the keys, putting him in the driver's seat of your life and saying, here you go, over to you, Jesus. Following Jesus is a lifelong pursuit of becoming more like him by living the kind of life he lived. And I don't know about you, but I want to follow Jesus in such a way that it changes me and that it changes how I live so that I can genuinely say that the life I live now with Christ looks really different from the life I lived before I chose to follow him. And so this morning, with our whole hearts, we're going to get serious about some of Jesus' strongest words because we don't want to be counted as those in our generation who didn't follow him, who didn't take his words seriously. We want to be counted as the few who were prepared to follow him no matter what. So I pray, Holy Spirit, come. Would you open up our minds and open our spiritual eyes? And would you make our hearts soft to receive your truth this morning? And Spirit of God, I pray that you would breathe on my words and let them carry your love and your grace. Lord, we want to leave here changed. We want to become more like Jesus than we arrived. We want to leave more like Jesus. Teach us, Lord. Amen. Amen. So just before we read from Matthew, um, I'm going to set the scene because that always helps. Jesus has been traveling um, through the villages and the towns for quite some time now, speaking to large crowds, uh, teaching about the kingdom of God, healing hundreds of people and doing miracles to prove his authority. And he decides now is the right time to ask the disciples who they think that he truly is. And Peter, good old Peter, who's probably speaking on behalf of all of them, says, you're him. We believe you are the Christ, the Messiah, God's king who's come into the world to rescue his people. That's who you are. And he's right. But this is a really significant moment. It's a really significant turning point in Jesus' story. From this point on, his ministry becomes less public, more private. He's not doing as many miracles. There's been a shift. His focus is now more towards, directly towards his 12 closest friends. And he's beginning to teach them what it really means to live as a disciple in the kingdom of God. He's preparing them. He's getting them ready for life as Jesus' followers. And so we're going to pick up the story now, Matthew chapter 16, with a conversation between Jesus and his disciples that doesn't end probably quite the way the disciples might have expected it to end. So let's read from Matthew chapter 16. All right. So, 
from that time on, so that's the moment we know everything's changed. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside, can you imagine, and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. I wonder if we've ever had moments where maybe something tough's happening in our life and a, and a well-meaning friend says, oh, this is, you should get out of this. You know, let's sort the situation and it can't be from God. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. That's got to hurt. That's like pretty offensive. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Amen. Lewis Carroll wrote a story called Alice Through the Looking Glass. Does anyone know it? It's um, the same Alice who went to Wonderland, but this time she discovers that she can actually climb through a mirror um, and uh, into a whole new world. And once she's there, there should be a picture coming up, once she's there, um, she discovers that... Just like a reflection, everything is reversed. Everything is reversed, including logic. So, um, running helps you stay still in the same place. Walking away from something brings you towards it. And so, in order to get somewhere in that world, you actually have to set off in the opposite direction. It's completely counterintuitive. And... Um, any just kind of normal everyday activities take, took so much mental effort to just get them completed. If you've ever tried to cut your hair in the mirror, cut your fringe or whatever, you'll know how difficult it is. Some of you don't have enough hair for that, but that's okay. It's very, very difficult. I did it once, had to get my friend to fix it. Um, and it's a bit like this for the disciples, not the haircuts, just the counterintuitive nature of the world that Jesus seems to be teaching them about. They must feel like they've just stepped into this mirror world. Um, just um, Jesus has just confirmed, yes, you're right. I am who you say I am, the chosen one. I've been sent to rescue you. But he starts saying, but I'm going to have to suffer. And I'm going to die. And so do you. What kind of rescue is that? That makes absolutely no sense. If he is the king who is supposed to rescue them from the rule of the Roman oppressors, then this is what makes sense right now. Guys, we need to sit down and strategize. We need to come up with a battle plan. The obvious solution right now would be this. March on Jerusalem, pick up some supporters along the way, choose our moment, say our prayers, fight a surprise battle, take over the temple and install Jesus as king. That's how God's kingdom will surely come. 
But Jesus, of course, had a different upside down, inside out, back to front kind of way. And he says, yes, we will be going to Jerusalem. Yes, the kingdom of God is coming. Yes, I will be exalted as king. But the way it will happen, the way to this kingdom is the exact opposite of what you have in mind. It will involve opposition and shame and suffering and death. Peter and the disciples are utterly confused. And I think they think that Jesus is a bit confused as well. Everything he has just told them is the exact opposite of how they imagined it to be and what they hoped for. I wonder if sometimes we feel a little bit like that. God, this is absolutely not how I thought it was going to be. And so Peter, who's just declared that Jesus is the Son of God, he dares to say, no, Jesus, no, that's not how it will be. This could never happen to you. And he quickly dismisses that hardship could be, of any kind, could be part of the plan. And what does Jesus say? This is hard. He actually calls him Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. Now that might sound familiar to you. And that's because once when Jesus was in the desert, he hadn't eaten for 40 days, 40 nights. He was hungry and thirsty. Satan comes to him and offers him kingship without suffering. It's right there for him to take. And Jesus says, get away from me, Satan. In that moment, Peter went from being the rock that Jesus said he would build his church on to the rock getting in the way of Jesus' mission. An, an obstacle, a stumbling block. And he says, get out of my way, Peter. Get behind me. Actually start following me. I'm the one in front. Don't try and lead me. I'm the driver's seat, and this is where we're going. And he goes on to say, it's not easy, this stuff. He goes on to say, you have no idea how God works. His ways are not your ways. You don't understand it right now, but it will all become clear. You might think that it seems upside down and inside out and back to front, but actually, I'm always doing everything the right way around. And then, after his little chat with Peter, I imagine him turning to his disciples and just gathering them in and pulling them closer and saying, Look, Here's the truth. Following me will cost you everything. And he says, if you want to be my disciple, here's how you do it. Number one, deny yourself. Number two, take up your cross. Number three, follow me. And I imagine him saying, are you still in? Jesus has just laid out before them, and us, how we can move from believer to follower. And the first thing he says is to deny yourself. What does Jesus mean by that? What does it mean to deny yourself? Well, let's talk first of all about what it doesn't mean. I think for some people, they think maybe 
that it's about treating ourselves badly, living with nothing, uh, punishing ourselves. It's, it's not about enduring the misery of watching everyone else eat nice chocolate biscuits while you grudgingly abstain. That is not what he means by denying ourselves. If you want to know the fancy Greek word, it's aparneomai. It's a really nice name. Sounds like a really nice name. Um, it means to refuse, so refuse to think about oneself. Imagine the queen saying it. To refuse to think about oneself. It's counter-cultural. It goes against everything that we want for ourselves. It's putting others first. It's a putting others first way of living, and it's a putting God first before anything else way of living. Do you know it's about humbly submitting our wills to God and following his example? You know, the word follow that he uses means imitate. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that suffering and death is just around the corner, he cries out to God, Take this away from me, if you can. It's too much to bear. And just moments later, he says, but not my will be done, but yours. The selflessness, the denying of self of Jesus in that moment, do you know what it is? It's a glorious demonstration of his deep, deep love for you and I. And when he says to us, deny yourself, he's really saying, put my love on display to everyone in your world. Put them first. Think about yourself last. That's what communicates love more than anything else. And don't I know it? Because last week, or two weeks ago, the night before we go on holiday, now Mark knows me, been married for nearly 20 years, he knows that I love my house to be tidy and clean and spotless with everything washed, nothing left in the washing basket, nothing left in the dishwasher, nothing left in the sink before I go on holiday so that when I come back from holiday, there's nothing left in the sink, there's nothing in the washing machine and so on. Anyone else like that? Good. All the girls. Oh, did you put your hand up, Mark? <laughs> So you can imagine how delighted I was and how utterly loved I felt when the night before we left, when I know all Mark wanted to do after a long week at work was sit down in front of the TV. You can imagine how loved I felt when he spent most of the evening cleaning and hoovering and getting the house ready whilst I packed our suitcases. Come on, come on. <laughs> what a demonstration of love it may seem small but actually it was huge he put me first it communicated so much it's a demonstration of his deep love for me and I'll never forget it times that by a million what Jesus did for us Denying ourselves is about seeking what's best for others before we seek what's best 
for ourselves. Relationships work best when two people deny themselves. If you've ever doubted God's plan for marriage, you know, if you've ever wondered about the wife submit, husband's love, there's no doubt. That model that God has created is two people denying themselves. When you're both denying yourselves, of course you will submit and of course you will love. It says to the men, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what did Christ do? Died for the church. God knows that relationships work best when two people deny themselves. Church works best when people deny themselves. Sacrificially, putting others first, putting the bride of Christ. We're married to Jesus as the church, putting the church first. Making decisions that not necessarily meet our needs, but meet the needs of this church family. Will we always get it right? Probably not. But thank goodness for the grace of God, eh? I think God understands that actually over years we've created habits of the heart that are not easily broken. And he's patient with us as we learn what it really means to follow him. And so we say, Holy Spirit, help us to say no to our own wants and desires and surrender to the way you want us to live. That demonstrates your great love. Amen? That's not the end, just in case you were wondering. (laughs) That's just an agreement. The second thing he said was, take up your cross. I wish I had a big cross to demonstrate, but you all know what a cross looks like. What did Jesus mean when he said, take up your cross? Well, let's again look at what he doesn't mean when he says, take up your cross. Some people, again, think the cross is some burden God has put on us that we must carry like a physical illness or a strained marriage or relationship. And we say, well, that's just my cross I have to bear. From my understanding of this, that's not at all what he meant. And let's not have that mentality of God pushing something on us that we have to carry. What you have to remember is, To a person in the first century and to the disciples, the cross meant only one thing. Jesus hadn't yet died on the cross. We wear it as a necklace, as a symbol of hope and victory. But remember, that hadn't happened yet. When they heard Jesus say, pick up your cross, it was a death sentence. All they knew was that the cross represented death, a painful, humiliating, torturous death. They would think that we were crazy to wear a cross around our neck. It would be like the equivalent of wearing an electric chair. It's a form of execution. The cross was definitely not a symbol of hope and victory as we see it. They didn't know that it meant victory ahead. All they heard was, follow me and you're likely to die. It's pretty hard, isn't it? And actually, if you know your history at all a little bit, most of them did die on a cross. Most of them were martyred, crucified on a cross, just like Jesus. And also what we have to remember is, today, um, it's, it's easy to forget that Western culture that we live in is not the whole world's culture. 
Taking up your cross in many places on this earth does mean physical suffering and death for anyone who chooses to follow Jesus. And I think we need to just stop a moment and allow ourselves to be shocked by that. It's a wake-up call. Actually, what we go through is relatively easy, dare I say, in comparison to the cross that some other people have to bear. And I've been asking God this week to allow it to shock me in a good way. For us here, it's unlikely that any of us would be faced with the prospect of physically dying for our faith. But here's the thing. Taking up our cross still involves a death. Death to self. Death to our old nature. Death to our selfish desires. Death to what we want. Death to our own comfort. Do you know the purpose of the cross? Is to kill someone. When Jesus says, take up your cross, he's saying, die to yourself. What did it mean for Jesus to take up his cross? It meant rejection, opposition. It meant shame. It meant suffering and death. So if we are followers of Jesus, imitating his life, going after him, pursuing him, then it means the same for us. When we resolve to follow Jesus, we must be willing to face rejection from our friends. I know some of you have experienced that. We may face hostility towards our faith from our work colleagues. We will live in opposition to much of what the world says and tries to teach us. People might even try and shame us for what we believe. They may mock us. I know some of you have been through that. But can I finish with this? Remember this. When Jesus took up his cross, he experienced all of this first. You are not alone. He's been through every bit of it. He's felt every bit of it. God didn't lift him out of it. You're not alone in what you go through. He's been there before you. And no other religion, no other religion can say of their leader, he knows how I'm feeling. He knows what I'm going through. He understands. No one except a person who follows Jesus can speak of the incredible love poured out on them from the person they follow. Jesus would send you a billion hearts on Instagram to show you how much he loves you and cares for you. We are the only faith who has a leader worth following who loves his people. He will endure anything for you, and he, he did. He endured the shame of the cross. But, everyone say but, the cross isn't the end of the story. The opposition Jesus faced ended in victory. The shame ended in honor the suffering ended in peace, and the death ended in life. These things do not have the final word. The end of the story is resurrection, not just for Jesus, but for us. And so Jesus actually has turned the cross, 
symbol of death into now a symbol of life. And so when he says, pick up your cross, what's he saying? He's saying, pick up life. Pick up real life. The end of the story is victory and eternity. And you know, when I read this story with Peter, he didn't even see it. Jesus specifically said, from that time on, he began to explain that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. But Peter is so focused on the tough stuff, on the suffering, on the what's happening now, on the present, that he absolutely misses the end of the story. All he saw was here and now. We need to see the significance of what happens at the end of the story. Jesus did promise that this life wouldn't be easy, but he makes even bigger promises about the next life. Let's never forget that although the call to deny ourselves and take up our cross is tough, the reward is matchless. We need to look past the shame of the cross and see the glory of what's to come. Jesus promises that all the suffering that we endure on this earth is nothing compared to the joy of spending eternity with him. Do we believe that? Will we be one of the few in our own generation who will take Jesus seriously at his word? The tough stuff, but also the glorious stuff. All of him for all of me, holding nothing back, no half measures. Jesus says, whoever wishes to save his life in this world will eventually lose it through death. But whoever loses his life in this world for my sake will find it. That is life with me for all eternity. The seemingly inside out, back to front world, this is God's kingdom. And because it's God's kingdom, it's not at all back to front. It's absolutely the right way around, lovely and perfect.